Hello, and welcome to HMI's College of Hypnotherapy. My name is Katie Leonard. I'm a certified hypnotherapist and a proud graduate of HMI. Congratulations! Your enrollment in HMI's Foundations in Hypnotherapy course is an important first step on a wonderful journey of self-discovery and a great preview of a rewarding career helping others as a certified hypnotherapist. This Foundations in Hypnotherapy course is offered to you for no cost or obligation, so you can experience the quality of education offered at HMI and discover firsthand whether hypnotherapy training is right for you. Successful completion of this course is required for enrollment in our advanced training program. Our online training allows you to study anytime, day or night, from any computer, and even includes a personal HMI tutor to assist you with your questions and progress. So are you ready to start your professional hypnotherapy training? Okay, then relax, enjoy, and welcome to HMI. Well, hello, everybody. Hello. It's a pleasure to welcome you to HMI's Foundations in Hypnotherapy course this evening. Uh, my name is John Melton. I'm a senior staff instructor here at uh, HMI. And uh, about a decade ago, a little over a decade ago now, um, I uh, began, began my journey uh, that, that many of you, I think, are, are beginning tonight. Um, I decided to make a career change in my life and I came from the music industry and decided I wanted to do something different with my life and my whole life often had been about helping other people. People always kind of came to me and asked me for advice and things of this nature. And about 30 years ago I began studying the mind and studying the body and I built a biofeedback machine and, and um, I became fascinated with this. So when I decided to make a career change I investigated this, uh, this program and many others and so again, about uh, 11 years ago or so, I was sitting right where you, you folks are and going through this course and being taught by another uh, senior staff instructor. And it has become, for me, a, a truly successful and very fulfilling career. And our hope is that you will also enjoy uh, this, this same type of journey. So with that, why don't we get started tonight? Uh, just a couple of things as I go through the lecture tonight and, and each night I'm with you folks. Um, at times I'm going to mention that I'm going to red flag something or put an emphasis on something. So hopefully you'll have some paper, you'll be taking some notes, and you'll just make a little note that that is a particular 
uh, importance to, to uh, keep a handle on, so to speak. Uh, I want to start by bringing up, uh, actually, a graduate, just to do a quick demonstration <laughs> to start with. So um, I'm going to bring up Nicole. She's a, a, um, a graduate of the program. She's going to come up just behind me here and have a seat. This is Nicole. Hello. Okay. How are you? Good. How are you? Good. Okay. All right. So you're sitting up straight, feet flat on the floor, your back against the chair, okay? So, Nicole, I want you to just look up towards the, uh, the wall there and find a point. Focus your attention on that point. And just allow a full, deep breath, okay? Just keep your eyes focused right on that point. As you breathe in, just become aware of the breathing and feel a sense of kind of a heaviness in the eyelids as, as you begin to do this. Now your eyes are fixed right on that one point. Just feel that heaviness and every time you feel that breath drawn to your body, you feel that heaviness in the eyelids. Every time you blink, you feel that heaviness. Every time now, and that heaviness is becoming even stronger now and every time you feel that, just feel how that heaviness is growing in your eyelids. Heavier and heavier, very, very heavy. And just feel how in a few moments, just going to simply want to close. Very, very heavy. Very, very heavy. And now this deep sleep. Good. Now just allow yourself to begin to unwind, begin to relax a bit. Now we're going to just take a hold of your arm for a moment. Now just relax. Let me have your arm. Very loose. That's right. Now we're going to take all the tensions out of your body. We're going to put them in this arm. And in a few moments then, as I count backwards from five down to zero, with each count, just allow all the tension to move into your arm, okay? So we're going to begin at five now. Let all the tensions begin. Four. All the tension now. Three, two, one, and at zero now. Very, very stiff. Very, very stiff. Stiff as a steel bar. Very, very stiff. You cannot bend it. The harder you try, the more difficult it is. But you can try. But the harder you try, the more difficult it is to bend. When I take your wrist, we're going to release all the tension and just let it go. Now take a deep breath. Deep breath. Now let's just release it. Let it go. Let it go, and just deep sleep now, okay. Very good, now calm, more comfortable. In a few moments, we're going to simply awaken you. And you know the count from zero up to five, at five awakening completely to a non-suggestible state. And just feel and sense that awakening as we start at zero, but always a tendency to go a little deeper at zero. And then at one, let yourself begin to come up now. Two, more aware of the room around you. Three, four, and at five, eyes are opening wide awake. One, two, three, four, five, eyes open wide awake. Okay, by show of hands, how many people think she was hypnotized? How many people don't think she was hypnotized? How many people don't really care? <laughs> All right, well we'll, well, we'll think about this as we go through the classes, and maybe we'll have, a, have an answer for you a little bit later. Okay, thank you so much, Nicole. We're going to uh, start tonight by, by talking about a little bit about the history of a, a few people in, in, in uh, hypnosis and hypnotherapy. Uh, it's a very, I think, deep subject. There's a, there's a lot of uh, history around uh, these tools and the things that we're going to begin to learn about in this class. But we're just going to talk about a couple of uh, specific people to get started tonight. So the first person we're going to talk about is a gentleman named... Franz, Anton, and I already heard someone say it. We always know, right? Who is it? Mesmer. Mesmer, right. 
Mesmer is the, the, uh, the man who first gave basically what we now call <laughs> hypnosis, its original name, which was what? Animal magnetism. Well, that's what he felt was the, the, uh, his ability, but it was called mesmerism, oh. right? And so in about 1770s, about 1779 or so, Mesmer was really uh, all the, the rage, so to speak. And he did feel he had this ability to magnetize uh, people with his, you know, his powers, so to speak. Of course, what we know now is a lot of that was his personality and his ability to uh, use often very theatrical uh, you know, processes to, to help people. But uh, Mesmer is the, is the original uh, originator of that name, Mesmerism. And uh, he worked with some very interesting cases. One of his early cases was a young woman who came to him with her eyes, uh, effectively she was blind because her eyes were rolled up under her eyelids and kind of like this, and, she, and they were kind of stuck in that position. And one of the things we learned um, from some of the work that Mesmer did was this idea that emotional traumas can create physical manifestations in the body. Now, of course, we know that in science today, don't we? Things like uh, excessive stress can lead to what? Heart issues or things of this nature, right? Or anxiety problems, things, things of this nature. So um, then along came a man, and his name was Dr. James Bray. If I'd asked you, probably somebody knows that name too. He's fairly well known as well. Dr. Braid in about 1840s, we'll say about 1849, he's a Scottish surgeon. And Dr. Braid was not really convinced uh, about this thing that we call mesmerism. And uh, so he wanted to do some research on this. And when he first started doing some of the research, he did some very simple experimentations. He would do something like place a, a wine bottle on a table and he'd have an assistant just sit in a chair and just stare at it. And he wouldn't say anything. He'd just observe and watch what would happen. And after a while, what do you think happens? <laughs> well, this is, this is what literally happened is the, you know, you get bored probably and you're staring at that thing and then you close your eyes. <laughs> so uh, Dr. Braid originally, his, his theory was, well, there's nothing more to this than, than I've got somebody who's going to sleep on me here. Well, this, is, this is nothing, right? So, uh, of course, being a doctor of the day, he, was, he would write in the medical journals of the day. And when, as he began to write about this, he actually renamed it from mesmerism to hypnosis, and he, takes to, he took this from a Greek origin, a word relating to sleep, and he created hypnosis. And you want to remember, uh, red flag this idea, that Dr. Braid, from Greek origin, uh, actually created that name hypnosis, or came up with that name hypnosis, which we now use. Uh, later on, the interesting thing is he re recognized that it isn't really sleep. Um, and he, in fact, even tried to rename it again, but it, it never, never took, so to speak. And uh, as still today, we have this word hypnosis. He recognized that when someone's in hypnosis, they may be in a state that appears to be like sleep, but the reality is, is that they're not really asleep. And of course, we know that uh, in this work today. When somebody's hypnotized, their eyes may be closed, they may have uh, an affect of being placid and their breathing may change and things of this nature. And we even see some movements in the eyes that are often related to sleep states. And, and we're going to talk about that later in, the, in these classes together as we move forward. But the reality is when you're hypnotized, you're very aware. You know, you're, you're not asleep. And 
you can hear and you, can, you follow along. And it really is um, what, what you might call, <coughs> pardon me, what you might call a consent state. The person has to want to be hypnotized. You can't control somebody with hypnosis and make them do things they don't want to do. So all of you that came here to learn how to control your 15-year-old, uh, you know, sorry. It's <laughs> unlikely to work that way for you. So. Um, but we can do wonderful things with it. And as we learn more about the application of hypnosis, I think you'll see how that, that is the case. By the way, how many people here have been hypnotized before? So we're looking at, well, that's actually less than about half, half the class or so. Okay. Well, we'll talk about that again a little bit later as well. So in about 1968, uh, I was fortunate enough to, to, to know Dr. Kappas. And um, he's a very brilliant and curious man. And as he began his work, he was trying to figure out why sometimes when he worked with, a, with a, one of his uh, clients that he would have a, a great effect and other times he wouldn't. And he began to research what's going on, what are the uh, differentials here, what, you know, what's, what are the subtle changes or the things that are happening that might be influencing this differential. And what he began to notice is that much of the time what it was really about was how he was different with the client rather than necessarily something may, that may have been different uh, with the client themselves. And this began his research into what has now become what we call the physical and emotional suggestibility scale and physical and emotional sexuality scale, which we're going to talk about uh, in this class as well. Suggestibility we're going to get into tonight, uh, is, uh, specifically. Um, and so as we get into this, you're going to see how we don't we don't all learn the same way. We don't process information the same way. And when we talk about suggestibility, it's how we learn. And what he discovered is that some people have to uh, be approached with a certain uh, type of communication, more literal or more uh, via inference. And as we talk about this, I think you'll see how and why that, that is important. Uh, and we're going to get into that in the second half of the class. Okay? So... <coughs> What I want to go over you here, with you here is very important, and this is uh, what we call a, theory, a theoretical model of the mind. We call it theory of mind. And so I'd like you to take notes, and, and because this is a very, very important foundational um, uh, model of, of how the mind functions and how the work we do integrates into that model, okay? So... I was hoping for a better circle. That's more egg-like, but uh, sometimes I, I do a pretty good job. Um, so with theory of mind, let's, let's just think of this semicircle as uh, somebody's mind. Does it look like someone's mind to you? Hello. Uh, <laughs> if we look at this and, and just imagine this is our mind, there is one of the processes through which we learn is what we call identification. Association, and then we often create a response to that. Okay. So let's think about in life uh, how how this applies. Um, an example would be something like you might hear a, a, a specific song on the radio. What what happens sometimes when you hear a song? What does it do inside? Go back to where you were, who you were with, you 
can remember in detail. Right. So you, you, you hear a certain song. I was just uh, at, at dinner uh, yesterday. A student happened to come in where I was eating, and we had a, a chat, and she said, I was so excited. I was driving here, and this certain song came on, and she was talking about how it lifted her spirits and how she was got all excited because of the song. And these, this, is, this kind of thing can happen. She, you know, we identify that song. We associate it, as you were saying, uh, with a certain moment in our life or something of that nature. And then we have a certain response. Sometimes it's an emotional response, something of that nature. Of course, that happens with our other senses as well. Sure. Correct? It could be something like a smell, as an example. I mean, uh, just to give you a little personal uh, anecdote here, I guess... You know, my, my mom wore this specific cologne that was called Ginate. Very, very unique scent. I don't think it was too expensive. Uh, anyway, but, you know, to this day, if I smell that, it's like I de- identify this cologne, associate, you know, mom. And my response is I think of her and I have a warm feeling and it reminds me of when I was a kid. Or the smell of uh, fresh cut grass. Does that bring up a memory for you? And you? For me, that's a really strong one. I remember where I grew up and the first time I smelled that. So this is an obvious process through which we can associate so many uh, of our senses. So when we're born, if we think of this as our mind again, there's part of the mind that is already wired and functioning. And we're going to call that the primitive area. And in this primitive area, there's a couple of responses we're going to look at, and ones that I'm sure most of you are well aware of, either uh, having experienced them, I'm sure, yourselves, but also probably studied them at one point or another. And this is what we call the fight flight. Now, these are just a couple of the responses that are here, but fight flight, of course, is one of these primitive kind of survival mechanisms that we're born with. And if we feel like we are being threatened, then we're either going to try to fight it and survive, or obviously flight or run and, and survive. And in a more primitive environment, if we were to imagine ourselves, let's say, as um, cavemen or something, you know, if we were out and we came across a uh, saber-toothed tiger and we had the right tool or whatever or weapon, we might fight it and maybe have dinner or flight uh, so that we do not become dinner, this kind of thing. So a a basic survival mechanism. We're also born with a couple of fears, and then we begin to associate, as we talked about before, and learn about the world around us through our experience. And so we're going to have some, some positive experiences, neutral experiences, negative experiences, that for each of us is going to make up how we interact with the world around us. Uh, so just simple example. Uh, growing up, I was the kind of kid that uh, kind of pushed my parents <laughs> to have animals. And so I had the dog, the cat, the turtle. I had the fish. I kept most of them alive a long time, too. So that was pretty good. Um, but, you know, so growing up, I created a very positive relationship with, with, an, with animals. And let's say dogs as an example. But let's say that Stanley here, maybe growing up, maybe he was bitten by a dog, you know? And so if my dog came running in here right now, I would be likely to act like a 10-year-old and want to play with her. 
But of course, Stanley would activate that fight-flight response because for him, he's associated a threat to this. Now, I know this is very simple, but we're building from here and coming up, okay? So the point is, is different people uh, in the same world, given the same stimulus, can react very differently based on what we've learned, right? Okay. Um, so these things are what we, what we call our knowns. What becomes known to us. And these knowns, uh, again, when we identify a situation, associate to it, and respond, they really become very uh, subconscious in nature. I mean, if we go back to Stanley again and, and this example of him being afraid of a dog, does he see a dog approach and say to himself consciously, uh, I recognize there's a dog approaching. I'd like to activate my fight flight. <laughs> That's not what happens, right? I know I'm being silly, but the reality is after a while it becomes very much a, this kind of automatic response. So, same thing with the positive response. That's just how we react in these situations. So if we look at this primitive area and uh, these knowns and these memories, these associations, all these kind of autonomic or automatic responses that go on in the body and in the mind, we look at this as all unconscious or subconscious in nature. And so we estimate that's about 88% of the mind. Now, when we reach about eight or nine years of age, approximately, uh, we're, we begin to create, we're going to call this the critical mind. <coughs> and it's part of the consciousness and part in the unconscious mind. And this critical mind, we think of this as a kind of filter of sorts, uh, critical thinking. You know, when we're younger in age and we don't have the, the organic brain development, we don't have the life experience, uh, then we don't have the ability to really analyze and think about and decide what is correct or not correct because we literally haven't, uh, you know, we haven't matured enough to do that. But at a certain point, somewhere around eight or nine years of age, we're, we're beginning to be able to really use th this idea of critically analyzing, just as, as you, you guys are doing here tonight. You're thinking about the information, analyzing it, deciding if it <laughs> makes sense to you or not. And so the conscious critical thinking, we've got logic, and we've got reason, and we've got decision, and our will, or willpower. And so this part of the mind, this uh, conscious critical thinking is there to try to protect us or so that we can think about, analyze. You know, when, when we imagine a young child that doesn't have this facility and if you're the adult, you're the parent, and you say something to them, do they have the ability to think about and analyze and is that logical and does that make sense? They're, they're much more receptive and open. They, they, they just accept it at face value, don't they? Until the ability is developed both uh, through brain development and experience and, and you know, uh, learning about life. And so we have this critical uh, facility that becomes available to us. And so 
we're looking at this is about that other 12%. What's important is that we understand how these two can interact and why, at times, this can lead someone to come to see us in the work we do or other uh, <laughs> therapists. So, 12% is the conscious, which includes part of the critical mind, and 88% is the unconscious with the other, basically, half of this critical mind. We're going to get into a little more of that next, in our next class in terms of the detail. So let's look at some examples of how this interaction can occur. And uh, I'll just pick out names and pick on people, so hope you're, hopefully you're okay with that. Uh, Nathan. So let's say Nathan, and who can I pick on? Roberto? Okay. So let's say they're in class together and they one day they're coming into class and they decide, uh, let's get together for dinner before class. And Nathan's been on this health kick. And so he's been eating well, uh, you know, getting rid of the refined carbohydrates and the excess fat and all this. And he's feeling good, working out. And uh, so they get together and, you know, what does he, what does he order? Maybe grilled chicken salad <laughs> with the uh, dressing on the side? hold the bread, something like that, right? And feeling good about what he ordered. And so what does Roberto order? Cheeseburger. Cheeseburger. <laughs> Fries, you know, double-sized Coke or, you know, 64-ounce Coke or something. And here comes the food. But, you know, Nathan's good with that, and Roberto's good with that, and they're going ahead, and they're eating. They finish their meal. And I'm sure he looked at some of that stuff on his plate and went, oh, it looks pretty good, but I'm feeling good. And so he's, you know, logic, reasoning. I know what I'm doing. This is good for me. I'm going to eat well and continue to be healthy. But then the, the unimaginable thing happens. And here comes, here comes the server. And what is the server bringing? Uh-oh. <laughs> it's a dessert tray. And so let's say that growing up, Nathan at every birthday, let's say, his mom gave him, how about chocolate cake? Okay, chocolate cake. And when that dessert tray comes over, guess what is sitting right next to him when it, it sits right next to his, his face? There's this double thick, triple layer chocolate cake from, from hell, you know? <laughs> and, and it's right next to him, and now he starts to smell it, identify, associate, respond, you know? starting to crack a little bit. <laughs> uh, and, then, and then, you know, of course, what he's getting is the big smile inside, and now the salivation starts. And he's, he's trying to hold out. No, nah, I don't eat that stuff. I'm getting healthy, all that. And next thing you know, what happens? He's eating. Next thing you know, he's got his napkin wiping chocolate off his face because he just ate a whole big piece of that, right? So what happens there? <coughs> what happens? Subconscious went out. In essence, I guess, yeah, that's right. The subconscious wins out because this strong, powerful part of his mind that has this strong relationship that was established a long time ago and has such a pleasure association to it is saying, eat chocolate. You know, uh, I don't believe chocolate's good for me. Eat chocolate. <laughs> you know, and it is this conflict between the two that occurs. And you know, sometimes he can do it, but what put him over the edge is that 
proverbial straw that broke the camel's back was this chocolate cake that he associated to, and they're now, now the next time they go to dinner, he's eating the, the hamburgers and everything because, you know, it's... <laughs> right? um, so if we think about that idea, what are some other things that can occur like that that, that, that we see in, in our lives or in or people we know, their lives, where this kind of conflict occurs? Yes? Alcoholism, that's a good example. At a certain point, the person doesn't want to drink anymore, consciously. Their logic tells them not to, right? But what happens? Now here, of course, we have some biochemistry involved, too. It's not just psychological, but there certainly is that psychological component. What's something else? Smoking is a big one. Of course, that's one we deal with often, because there is such a strong psychological relationship uh, to the addiction of smoking. So let's look at smoking for a minute. You know, think about smoking. You know, anyone who smoked will tell you. I've never met a single person. I've worked with literally hundreds of smokers, but there is really no one I've ever talked to who said that first cigarette they smoked, they went, "Oh, that is good. <laughs> Ooh, love that thing." Right? They, it, it, your body's telling you, "Don't put this in me." You're coughing. You're getting nauseated, or you'll have some response like that. Right? But when you're maybe in your late teens, when a lot of people start smoking and your friends are smoking, you push through that. And of course, we're a very adaptive species. And after a while, your body goes, okay, so we'll shut down that response because I guess we're going to have this stuff around all the time. And then both the unconscious learned or the subconscious learns to associate this, this uh, connection to, uh, let's say, after a meal, I want to reach for a cigarette, or when I'm stressed, eventually this kind of relationship becomes established. And so in the beginning, let's say into the early 20s or so at least, they wanted to smoke and they're smoking, right? And they've learned to smoke, and so they've, they've associated these the motivations, these uh, associations that are driving that behavior, right? And so there, that conflict doesn't exist then, does it? Because they want to do it consciously, and subconsciously they're being... Uh, motivated to do it. There is no conflict there yet. What happens? When does the conflict occur? And why does that happen? Maybe they get older and they decide, you know what? This doesn't taste so good anymore. I'm afraid it's taking away my youthful appearance. Uh, I feel like a social pariah. Uh, I'm coughing a lot. Uh, I'm tied down to this ball and chain. Uh, it's, and these days, the cost is, you know, it's becoming exorbitant to smoke, isn't it? So all these elements come into it, and at a certain point, they say to themselves, I don't want to do this anymore. But the con now the conflict has occurred, because just because they consciously don't want to do it, it does it change this? Well, over time, maybe, over a long period of time, but initially that conflict is certainly there, and people struggle with that. And, you know, most of us don't, don't know this information. They just think, well, I should, if I want to stop, I should just be able to stop. And then they beat themselves up, and they create these, uh, you know, they stress themselves out over it, and the stress leads to wanting to do it more. And, you, you know, you get into these cycles, right? So that's our job. Because our job is to help people to change some of these learned associative relationships that don't work in their life anymore. And so... We help people to, to change these relationships when they become established. It's one of the, one of the very important things that we do in this work. Um, so we talked about the, the eating and the chocolate cake. I remember a case 
um, that my mentor in this, in this program years ago told me about a, a young woman who came in who was in a relationship and she kept sabotaging it. This is another thing that can happen. You know? She couldn't figure out why because consciously her logic, her re reasoning said, you know, this is a good guy. He's nice to me. He's good to me. But I keep these behaviors keep coming up. And what she uncovered was the fact that this, this, uh, this, this guy in her life was an actor. And in her family growing up, her father was an actor. And her mother used to always say to her over and over again when they get in a fight, whatever you do, don't ever marry an actor. You know? And so this kind of conditioning and this negative actor. And so every time they get closer and closer, this, thing, this motivation would come up and this, this internal sabotage would happen. And so this is another, you know, it can, it, can, it can happen in relationships and things like cigarettes. It can happen in so many different areas of our life that these conflicts can occur. So we help people to resolve those conflicts, okay? Any questions about that? Pretty straightforward, huh? Okay. So in our daily lives, we have a lot of information that we process. And we're, gonna, we're going to call this processing of information message units. Message units. <clears throat> and we're going to focus on four uh, elements that relate to uh, these message units. And one would be the environment. So I'm just going to put ENV for the environment, uh, our body, our conscious thinking, and our subconscious. Environment, body, consciousness, and subconscious. So what can happen <coughs> with these message units is that we feel like the, that, the, that the critical mind is kind of like this cup that I've been drinking out of, in that it has a certain capacity. And let's just say that capacity was 1,000 message units. And the idea is that when we start to process a lot of information, there's a point in which we can become overloaded. You know, it's like filling the cup up, and, if I, and if right at the top, if I put one more drop in there, it doesn't go in the cup anymore, and it just goes on the outside, right? And so when we have this overload that occurs, this critical filter begins to break down because it's, it can't filter anymore. I'm trying to stuff too much through the filter, and, and it's not there. Now, you know, I'm sure probably everyone in here at one point or another, and probably fairly uh, it's a fairly common thing is, is you'll say, I f I'm feeling overloaded, or you know, certainly you've experienced that, that, uh, that sensation, right? It might have been a difficult day at the office, and you go home, and something's not working, or, or just the stress of day-to-day -day kind of building up issues with sleep, things of this nature. And at a certain point, we just can't process anymore. And so... Let's look at an example of something like that that can happen. Let's say that I have a client coming in at 9 o'clock in the morning. And so I have to get up at about 8.30, no, uh, about 7 o'clock or so to, to get in here. And uh, I forget to set my alarm. 
And so I wake up and I've got a client at nine and the clock says, you know, eight. What's going to happen right in that moment when I see that clock? Yes. First thing is, uh-oh, <laughs> right? So first thing is I see that, that, uh, that number and my conscious th thinking starts going, uh-oh, I'm going to be late, right? And I start to worry. Message units flooding in, right? And uh, it's cold outside, and so as I get out of, the, out of my uh, bed, uh, that cold air hits me, and there's messages through there, and then I, I kick my dog's toy, and it stubs my toe, and now I'm hopping, and so now I have more message units, and all the while, my subconscious is probably trying to get me to the coffee pot or, or the bathroom or something, right? And I go and get in the car, and it's a bad traffic day, and I'm, I'm going to be late, and I'm worrying, and it's cold, and my heater's not working, and all these things are going on, as an, as an example. One second, I'll get to your question. And we can reach a point at which, all of a sudden, I'm driving to work, but I'm not really aware I'm even driving to work. Anyone ever experienced that? <laughs> well, how did I get here? <laughs> you know? What happened? <laughs> yes, you had a question. I was going to ask, at that moment of the uh-oh, uh -huh. when you made a decision that it's going to be a bad day, can you also say, you know what, it's going to be a tight schedule, but I can do it? Sure. Operate from that point? Sure. And that you, you, oh, yeah, sure. You could have a positive or a negative, you know, optimistic outlook or a pessimistic one, certainly. But in either case, you're still, it's still processing information. It's like we talk about stress. Stress can be good or bad, but it's still a lot to deal with, you know. You're buying a house, and it's a wonderful thing, but going through that process is usually not fun, right? So whether it's a positive way you frame it or a negative one, still you're dealing with thoughts, ideas, information. And it was just look at those, whether they're good or bad, or positive or negative, optimistic, pessimistic, is messaging. It's just more information we have to deal with. So we can get to a point at which we can overload this critical thinking. And now the filter's not operating well. Uh, if at all. And so in, in essence, it's kind of like we've opened up this filter. And if we remember what we talked about earlier about uh, a child that grows up without, early on and doesn't have the filter, they're very, they're very open, very receptive, aren't they? Because they're not, they don't have that ability. And, and when, when our filter breaks down, then we're not filtering anymore either. And there is more of an openness. And so the negative ideas I have, or positive ones, now are being uh, more readily accepted in the unconscious without this filtering process to look at it, analyze it, decide if it's going to accept it, vent it either way, right? So, you know, we have this overload of message units that leads to the breakdown of this critical filter. And when the breakdown of the critical filter happens, it triggers a fight-flight response because now our critical filtering is breaking down and it triggers fight-flight. And we become what is commonly referred to as hyper-suggestible. Very suggestible, right? Now, how often does something like this happen in our daily lives? It can happen a lot. But, you know, if we're not aware of it because it's just what we have to deal with in life, then we're walking around how? An automaton, no. Yeah, you, you're in a, a hyper-suggestible state, or as you say, hypnotized. Yeah. 
So is that why they put billboards on the freeway? Because everyone's so overloaded that then you're like, wow, if I drink beer, women will really think I'm cute. <laughs> That's not true. <laughs> I mean, because that makes sense to me, then you're like... Well, you know, if we really get down to the nitty-gritty here, of course, all advertising is about suggestibility and about making people suggestible to, to whatever the product is through various means. And certainly uh, in our society, I mean, all we have to do is, is look at, at, at the U.S. And statistically, we work the most hours. We often sleep the least hours. We take the least amount of vacation. And uh, so basically, we're what? We're just stressed out and overloaded a lot of the time. That's a reality of what many of us are experiencing. Uh, and so, you know, with all the other things going on in our world at different times, there's always lots of things that are that potentially creating this kind of overload within us. Um, you know, so if we think about, I talked about the, the idea of driving to work, but I'm sure many of you can, can relate with the idea of driving uh, home from work is, is more common. You know, you've gone through your whole day and you've, dealt with all this stuff, and now you're driving home, and you don't, re you don't remember the drive? I mean, there's times when you'll be driving and you, you miss a turnoff, right? And you, how did I get here? I mean, I, and so your mind was off somewhere else and you were just driving. You wonder who's driving the car, don't you? <laughs> I hope my subconscious is a real good driver. <laughs> so far, it's been pretty good, but, you know. Uh, but understanding this also gives you the, the ability to understand when it's happening to you and also take charge of it more. <laughs> and you can learn how to be less overloaded, quote unquote, or when you are, what to do to become more uh, uh, in a more aware, conscious state. And these are some of the uh, em empowering tools that you'll learn, not only for yourself, but also, of course, for your clients. And again, in... in our society, uh, these tools are very valuable tools for people. We often see people who we have to dehypnotize before we can do anything else with them. You know? when, when we go to a, a movie theater, as an example, my brother's a film director, so we talk about being in the same business all the time, except he gets paid a lot more than me. But, but you know, he, he, wh why does he make a film? He, he produces a film to entertain people. And so that when they go and sit in a movie theater, they can become suggestible to that information and that they can have these responses uh, that are about entertainment, right? Because if you think about it, we go into, uh, if we think about a theater and we go and sit down like you are amongst a bunch of people, after a while, if it's a good film, you don't, you don't, remember, you don't think about the people around you, do you? They kind of go away and you get sucked into this. And why do you think it's a huge screen and really bright and the music's really loud? Right? They're overloading you. What they used to do in, in uh, movie theaters, they, they would put in these, these little ads in there, wouldn't they? Like they cut one frame in of, of, a, uh, of a Coke can or something, you know? And it was so fast that you can't, couldn't consciously pick it up. But subconsciously, you would. And their, their sales of Coke would go up. And they're not allowed to do that anymore, at least we don't think so. Um, but these are the kinds of things that, that, uh, that go on. In a theater, we get swept up in a film, and we know they're actors. We know it's not real, but do you get scared sometimes? Yes. Why? Because you allow yourself to do that, right? You allow yourself to become suggestible to that information. We laugh, we cry, <laughs> we, 
you know, we have these experiences. So, you know, earlier when we were here, I, I asked you guys how many people had been hypnotized before and what should have happened. Everyone's hand should have gone up, right? This is a natural state. It's a state we are going to, uh, you know, we're going to experience in life. We learn how to use this as a means of creating change in these, these conflicts that can, can occur between the consciousness and the unconscious. And, and there's some other things we also do with this, but that's a real primary uh, application of these tools. And um, so it's really not so much about can I be hypnotized or not, because, again, we, we experience that uh, in our lives very commonly. <laughs> Question about that? Yes. Think of the critical mind like a filter, okay? So whatever is coming in, whatever you're, you're, like right now, you're listening to me, you're looking at the diagrams I'm drawing, and you're analyzing it. Does this make sense? Is it logical? Can't read logic anymore, but is it logical? Is this reasonable? Uh, you're deciding whether you're going to accept this information or not. And if you don't, not going to take, you're not going to accept it, right? When we don't have that capability anymore, and then that information's coming in and you are overloaded, then you're less able to analyze and, and filter, and in a sense, we call it kind of a protective mechanism that we, that we learn in life. And when, so when we, we become overloaded or go into, as we've talked about, hypersuggestibility or hypnosis, <laughs> we open up this pathway into the unconscious that, where this critical thinking doesn't distort or diminish the idea or accept it or not, it is allowed to pass, okay? Um, so, when we think about this definition, one second, when we think about this definition of how hypnosis is, is being created here in, in this situation and how we are going to learn to create it in our uh, in our hypnosis work we do as well, uh, I want you to write this down, that hypnosis is created by an overload of message units. There's five elements to this. So it's overload of message units, it disorganizes the inhibitory process. So it's an overload of message units, disorganizing the inhibitory process or the critical mind. Inhibitory process and critical mind are the same thing. Overload of message units, disorganizing the inhibitory process, which triggers fight-flight, leading to hypersuggestibility and access to the subconscious mind. This is a definition of how hypnosis is being created. And as we go through these classes together, we're going to talk about how that occurs uh, in our work as well, <coughs> and how we can use it as a very effective tool to, to create uh, this suggestible state. Can you go through the steps again? Sure. It's overload of message units, number one, disorganizing the inhibitory process or critical mind. Triggering fight flight, leading to hypersuggestibility, access and access to the subconscious mind. 
want you to red flag that that, you, that you've written down there. And um, access to the subconscious mind. Five elements. Yes. What I'm confused about then is why so the, the client themselves <laughs> it's hard, it's hard to put it they never enter sleep. So you're, they're consciously aware of everything that you're saying. Right. I mean, it's not, it's not that they couldn't possibly fall asleep because ultimately it becomes a very you know, calm, relaxing state and so they could slip into sleep because literally the state is a transitionary state between fully conscious and fully unconscious. But if they're asleep, do you then lose the ability to get access to subconscious mind? Uh, it's a little complicated question, but essentially yes. And so we don't want them to fall asleep. And we have ways of, of, of analyzing the state they're in and the depth they've achieved. And we watch for them slipping into sleep. It's interesting you bring it up because I had a, my last client this afternoon, uh, what, this was a, a case I had to keep, keep him from falling asleep. He was just kind of drifting off too deep. And uh, as we go through this class, you're going to learn how to identify the depth and uh, you know, see when they're going into a deeper state and where we can you know, actually see this. Now, sometimes it's obvious, like they'll start snoring or something, but it's really not very common that they actually fall asleep. You, know? you have to realize this is a person that's coming to you with, with an existing problem, a presenting issue, and they want to deal with this, and, and they tend to be uh, focused. You know? And in some people actually experience hypnosis as being more focused with their eyes closed. And that it, for someone who hasn't been uh, hypnotized in a clinical setting to work on an issue, that may seem counterintuitive because people often think about this as being unconscious, but unconscious doesn't work, and it's not what we want, and it's not hypnosis. Why is it called sleep? Well, that's what I said earlier. When, when Dr. Braid originally uh, researched it, he thought they were falling asleep, and so he, he, he originated this idea, and unfortunately, it's maintained itself, uh, even though it's not accurate. Yes? Mm-hmm. You were giving her a lot of things to focus on all at once. Is that the, uh, is that the uh, message unit, the overloading of the message unit, so giving her so many things? In this case, the reason I brought, uh, brought up uh, Nicole as a, uh, a conditioned subject was because um, I didn't want to spend a lot of time getting into state. I wanted to do a, a fast induction with her and see what kind of response and what you thought was going on there before you learned anything or you would see what was really happening. And the reality is she is going to respond because of what we call a post-suggestion to rehypnosis, and, and she's conditioned. And that's why it can happen very rapidly. And that's what we saw there. So I didn't have to go through uh, a tremendous amount of overload, although I can be honest with you, uh, her coming up and sitting in front of all you folks with lights and everything yeah. and cameras, I'm sure she was pretty overloaded as well. So it probably helped us. But it, wasn't, it wouldn't have been necessary in this case because she's conditioned. Yes? Is our goal always to assist our clients in breaking down the, uh, the, the critical filter in order for them to be suggestible? Is that always? Yes, the, the critical filter is what goes into abeyance. It opens up. And, and so as we go through this, you're going to see how we initially create it and then how we recreate it. And how we initially do it isn't the way that we then continue to do it. But we have a very uh, important process you will learn beginning next class, and I will demonstrate it here. And speaking of that, you know, as we go through this class, I'm going uh, to ask for some students to come up and, and give me permission to work with them and show you some of these 
these processes. But you'll be in, in our next very next class. We'll see how that works, and actually, I'll demonstrate it for you for you folks. Okay. So our tools are our words, right? And how we use our words is very important. And in the second half of our of our class uh, tonight, we're going to talk about how we use our words uh, and how this idea of suggestibility and and fine tuning the way we work to the individual as opposed to trying to I, I call it uh, we don't bend the person around hypnosis we bend hypnosis around the person we, we make it work for each individual and uh, it's a very important part of this and as I said we'll get into that in a minute I've got time for maybe one or two more questions before a break if the person who tries to quit cigarette or bad habit Mm-hmm. If uh, they know about this or if we educate them about how the mind works, yes. is it easier for them to quit uh, that bad habit or cigarette? Or should we also uh, give them a perspective of how the mind works? Should we give them that education first? Yes. Is it easier to... Very good question, and you're exactly on the right track. Um, mm-hmm. Part of our work and the necessity of our work is what we do before we ever hypnotize them. And as we get into the more complexities of what we do, um, not to say that it's super complex, but that's one of the elements that's necessary is to teach them and to uh, allow them to know and understand why their problem exists and what it is we're going to do to help them to change that. And, of course, what we're doing there is we're creating uh, an an idea of uh, hope and uh, a logical way in which we can help them to change their issue that they've been having trouble uh, changing. Yeah. There was another question. It was just kind of comedy. I've been meditating for 30 years. Yeah. And what this does to me is tells me that if I were hypnotized and I can, I mean, told what to meditate on, what to focus on instead of just enjoying myself. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, because meditation and, and hypnosis. Yeah, right. Well, and, and of course, you would only be uh, instructed or you would only be given a suggestion if it was something that you wanted. Now, if you were hypnotized and I gave you a suggestion about something you don't want, you're never com- the filter's not never completely gone. You you always have the ability to reject suggestions. You can't make somebody do something they don't want to do in the state. This is not brainwashing. This is uh, a receptive state. But it's it's not like anyone in hypnosis will do something that they don't allow themselves to do or accept something that they won't allow themselves to accept. And usually when I say that, the question comes up about stage hypnosis and and uh, how that works. And at some point, if we have time, we'll talk about that. So if you are in this suggestible state, and you are completely, what you said has completely altered my entire idea of what hypnosis is and how it works, so I'm overwhelmed here myself. Okay. (laughs) Um, If you are in this hypnotic or suggestible state, and someone is giving you these suggestions, Uh if you are aware Mm -hmm. that you are doing these, how is it you can't stop yourself from... I'm not talking about something that goes against your moral fiber, but you know when they say, you know, you can't open your eyes, or you know, what's your name? You don't remember your name. How is it if you're aware that this mm-hmm. is going on? Why is it you can't? Well, you actually could if you wanted to reject that suggestion. You could, but you have to remember, uh, you know, what what you're not bringing into the equation. And the important part is that this is a person that has come to you with a presenting issue that they want to change in their life, and they've been, they've been seeking help with this. And so the person's coming to you, and part of what we have to do, of course, is create rapport with that person and a sense of trust. And so the person is going to follow along with you to a certain degree. You know, but if you get outside of boundaries of their you know, 
uh, morals or ethics or, or whatever, or if I whisper to you, you're going to bring me $100 when you leave, you know, the person would go, this guy's an idiot, and you'd never come back, you know. Uh, and that's the reality of it. So, but, you know, it's really, you have to look at it from the, from the perspective of someone coming to you, wanting to fix something, putting their trust in you, wanting to be led by you, hoping that this can help them. And in doing so, they will follow you through many of these ideas or these challenges uh, that you might, as you talked about, eyes being closed or something of that nature. Or when I did her arm stiff, she, if she really wanted to, she could have been it, but she's allowing herself to follow me. She's giving herself permission to do that. And that's how that works. Yeah. Uh -huh. How can she become over uh, power? Like if at the conscious mind, somebody tell me, all your hand, and they try to push it down, I go down. But in the hypnotic, how can it become overpowered that if you put a heavy weight on the hand, it is still not going down? How can it become overpowered? Well, you, you, we, first of all, we never overpower anyone. It's not what we do. Uh, someone is going to be receptive or not. And what you're going to find is we, again, get, you know, we've only had a couple hours together, not even that much yet. But what you're going to find out is what we do when we go through a process and they don't respond. There's, and, and I'll teach you what that means and what you do when that happens. And, but we're never trying to overpower anyone. That just gives us information. That tells us about them or maybe they have some resistance to a certain thing. And uh, so we're not far enough in for me to get into more detail than that. But you're going to learn about what we do when we suggest something like an arm rigidity and they don't follow. It's not a problem. It's all part of just learning and understanding what to do when that happens. Like in the movie, it shows that the guy that didn't want to do a strip it, by that mind, he do a strip it. <laughs> <laughs> if he didn't want to do it, how did he do it? <laughs> he ultimately allowed himself to do it. And in the state, he, you know, he decided, I'm, gonna go, I'm going for it. You know? I don't want to get into the whole stage hypnosis thing because there's a whole discussion about that. And if we have some time, I'll get into it. But I want to stick to the primary information. Why can't, if it's something he, he, <coughs> he allowed himself to do, why can't he remember that when he said, I can't remember that? Well, I don't know specifically what you're talking about, but sometimes there is, sometimes there is uh, some amnesia. And we're going to talk about that, too, in class. So let's just, we're, we're going to get to that, and it'll answer these questions. This is what happens. You know, we open this up, and then, you, you, it's, and it's perfectly natural. You're jumping ahead, but believe me, we've got a lot of information to come. I'll answer one more question, then we have to take a, a break. I know you said that it's on suggestibility and allowing yourself. But on the news about, I think, two weeks ago, there mm -hmm. was a store clerk. He got robbed by two men, and he said they hypnotized him. And he, honestly does not even remember how they wiped the store out. And they showed him the videotape, and, and he obviously paid everything. He said he would pay everything out of his paycheck. But he had no remembrance. It was two older guys. Yeah. That, I mean, the guys were like 70 years old, robbed the store. <laughs> <laughs> I swear to you. The guys were like 70 years old. Like, you know, like swamis kind of thing. And he said they made him, he, they gave him a piece of paper, and he read the piece of paper, and they said a few words to him. He didn't remember anything else. So, <laughs> what, what exactly is that? I, I, you know, without knowing, without, without knowing, what is that? What is that? He's in on it. That's what that is, probably. That's about all I can say. We need to take a break, and when we come back, we're going to have some more fun. So we'll see you in a few minutes, okay? Okay. Now that you are enrolled as an HMI student, 
We want you to feel like a part of the HMI family. Did you know that HMI has distance education students in 48 countries? To connect with other students, please go to the virtual classroom in the student menu. Student comments in real time allows you to read the comments for each lesson from fellow Foundation students from around the globe as they come in live. The Foundations Forum allows you to communicate with fellow HMI students to share information and experiences. So don't be shy. Just click on the HMI Virtual Classroom and join in. Starting with your second Foundations lesson, we will be switching our streaming video format to Windows Media. Some PCs and most Mac computers need to reset their settings to watch Windows Media. We're happy to assist you with this. We will provide you with instructions or even remotely do it for you. So, if you have any technical difficulties with our streaming videos or workbooks, please email our technical support professional at donish at hypnosis.edu. Well, of course, we have some distance education students, people from all around the world, do the Hypnosis Motivation Institute, the training with that certification, of course. And we have, it was Marla? Marla Boutain. Marla but Tell us a little bit about where you're from and how you found out about HMI. Um, I'm from Las Vegas, Nevada, and um, I found out through a Google search. And um, I was actually looking to go back to school for a psychology, something in that area. Mm -hmm. And this just uh, spoke to me. Once I read about the school, I knew that this was for me. But what was it like to do the program online? I know a lot of people have questions coming to the school or just doing it over the computer online. What was, the, what was that like for you? It's amazing. I've, I've never done online mm -hmm. school, but um, I'm able to focus. Although I love being in a classroom, but I don't have the distraction as well. Right. So I can focus on the class, and um, I have a little two-year-old daughter, so it allows me that flexibility. And I can go over the class if I want to and um, really, really get into the material and learn it wrong. I feel so prepared now because I've done, you know, <laughs> I've done the whole course and I've actually actually done the smoking sensation too. Good. So, and I already have a couple clients lined up for when I get back home. So. Perfect, perfect. So back in Vegas, watch out Vegas. She's coming out there for you. Hypnotherapist. Thank you so much. Thanks. Have fun at the graduation Thank tonight. You. Take care. Thanks. Hello, I'm Roseanne McDonald, certified hypnotherapist and uh, proud graduate of HMI. Before I became a hypnotherapist, I was a legal secretary and office manager of law firms for 25 years. Came home one night after work, looked my husband in the eyes and said, I can't do this anymore. And he said, why don't you become a therapist? You're always helping people every day anyway. In my hypnotherapy practice, I help people release weight, stress, anxiety, fears, phobias, and any other behaviors that uh, they would like to modify. Currently, I'm seeing about 15 clients a week, sometimes 20. I built my practice primarily on networking and referrals. My hypnotherapy career has not only allowed me to help others, it's allowed me freedom to be my own boss, make my own hours, enjoy my environment. And the thing that my family loves most about me being a hypnotherapist is that I love what I do. I have a passion for helping people. And I actually look forward to coming to my office every single day. And uh, so much so that my son, Joseph, followed in my footsteps. And one day he looked up at me and said, Mom, do you think I could do this? You help so many people with so many problems. And I says, oh my God, of course. So he has joined me in my practice. And uh, we are here in Thousand Oaks and enjoy every minute of it. 
You can find me, Roseanne McDonald, Certified Hypnotherapist, at www.hmigrads.com. Willpower just didn't work for me. Anybody that can do it on anything on sheer willpower, quit smoking, cold turkey, sheer willpower, lose weight, sheer willpower, I think are fantastic. I don't know how they can do it because I couldn't do it. He wanted to eat better. He wanted to, mostly he wanted the motivation to work out. It just becomes part of you. It's not like you're having to say to yourself, well, I, I can't eat this or I can't do that. Uh, trying to fight it. You feel, you just don't even think about it. You just automatically put that down and pick this up. Or like put down the cheese and pick up an apple. <laughs> and before you would never do that. I got up in the morning, did my walk, and the next thing I know I was on the bike and I didn't even think about it. And <laughs> that is amazing <laughs> to me because I used to have to fight just to get on it. My advice to anybody out there watching this would be to, to try hypnosis for whatever goals they have, whatever changes they'd like to make in their lives, whatever improvements, whatever's going on with their lives. I, I would just say that if, if they want to take it to that next level or feel better physically, emotionally, mentally, um, accomplish their goals to, to try hypnosis, because it works. Well, welcome back. Now that you've all had your sugar and your and your coffee, and you're all ready to go here, probably. So, we're going to continue. Uh, so, I get to erase my work of art here. Before I do that, any quick questions about this before we move on? Okay. Anybody want to take a picture and take it home? Yeah. Okay. I feel like I'm in the Karate Kid movie, you know. <laughs> wax on, wax out, thank you. <laughs> oh, come back here. Okay, so we've talked about the theory of mind. Now we're going to get into some discussion about uh, what I mentioned earlier. It's called suggestibility. So I want you to, to red flag this idea. Suggestibility is how we learn. How we learn, how we process information, how we learn. So when we have a condition or, or an issue that we're working on with the client, we have to know how they became suggestible to that, that uh, whatever that issue is or whatever, how they learned, whatever they learned that they want to unlearn, so to speak. So the idea is that the, the path through which they learned is their suggestibility, and we're not all the same. I mentioned earlier this idea that some people are more based on uh, uh, processing information literally and others more by inference. So let's get into that a little bit. So in this, uh, <clears throat> this model we, that I talked about earlier, with this literal inference, we have what we call the physical and the emotional. Now, before I get into this, let me just say, try to just define the suggestibility in these words the way I define them for you. It's very common that someone will see the word physical or emotional and they will assume that means certain things. So try to just understand it in, in the terms in which I teach them to, to you, and don't try to uh, assume anything about it, okay? If you can, as we go along. So we have the physical, 
Physical suggestible. This is someone who learns more literally. <laughs> okay? And then we have what we call the emotional. And this is someone who learns more by inference. Literal and inferred. So someone who's literal, of course, is taking the words at face value, literally interpreting what you say. And someone who is processing more by inference is the person who is, uh, in essence, hearing what you say, but maybe looking for the message behind the words. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean by that? Uh, we'll get into some discussion and, and make sure you understand that. And so there are some people that are much more direct and literal and others that are, that are more based on this inference. And you might remember a, uh, a program that was on television uh, years ago, named, it was called Cheers. And there was, a, there was a character on there, his name was Woody. And, and the whole gag with Woody is he took everything completely literally. So they would say something that was an inference and he wouldn't get it and he'd respond literally, bless you. And that was, and that was, the, uh, that was the gag. So we have this literal and this inferred kind of learning process. Uh, so let's look at just a quick example of, of, of that in people. Uh, I might say, let's pick on, I'll pick on Willie. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so let's say, let's say Willie uh, and I were working at the clinic here together, and she's a hypnotherapist, and I am. And one day, I'm walking through the, uh, the hallway, and I see Willie, and I say, oh, hi, Willie. You know, I love your hair today. And then I walk by. Now, what, she, could, she could process that a couple of ways, couldn't she? So what's one way she might process that? You didn't like it yesterday. Okay, exactly. You didn't like it yesterday or um, you're hitting on her. Yes, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> or it's just thank you, right? And it didn't take anything from it. So, so thank you would have been just literal. Oh, my hair looks nice today. But what you came up with was what? Inference. It's an inference, right? Because I didn't say I didn't like your hair yesterday. But, well, I, I may have or may have not, but the key point is that's how you took it, isn't it? You know, so as we go through uh, our lives and have discussions with people, have you ever experienced this where you talk to someone, especially, let's say, your significant other, and then about 20 minutes later, you're in this whole discussion, you didn't tell me that. Yes, I did. You did? You ever experienced that before? <laughs> yeah, I think once or twice. Yeah, we'll look at why that is, too, but... But, I, you know, I, I remember my wife yelling across the house to me, did you turn down the thermostat? And I yelled, I didn't touch it. <laughs> what did I take? <laughs> I'm an emo. Inference, right? I inferred. What, what I heard her say was, you turned down the thermostat. Mm -hmm. That's not what she said. She asked me because if I didn't do it, she was going to turn it down. But I took it a certain way. I inferred. <laughs> So I'm not perfect. Now, so, so this communication you know, goes on. Uh, I could ask this entire class. I could say to you uh, and have you answer in your head, do you have a name? And some people will think in their head, yes. And other people will think, Willie. Mm -hmm. Unless your name's not Willie. Uh, but, right? And so both of them could be a correct answer. But we need to understand that this communication is about 
you know, the state of mind of the receiver also, you know. And we've already discussed in the first half of this class that our, that our tools, our words, and, and everything we do is about communication. And so understanding how we are communicating, but most importantly, how the other person uh, tends to receive information is critical to being effective. Doesn't that make common sense? And yet, you know, when I was first studying hypnosis many years ago, everyone, uh, hypnosis was applied the same way with everybody. And there was a percentage of people it wasn't very effective with. And, you know, what we know now is that that's because there's, those people aren't receptive to the information delivered in that manner. Right? We, we've already talked about the fact that we can all be hypnotized, really, unless, you know, we're some medications or things or, or maybe, you know, some, some organic brain dysfunction or something. But generally speaking, right? So our understanding of how to assess an individual understand how they process information, and then, and then uh, create the tools and the suggestive ideas in a way that they can understand and accept is critical to our effectiveness. Makes, it makes common sense, right? So again, physical and literal. Uh, physical, excuse me, physical is literal, emotional is inference. So when we think about this, well, well why, why might someone be more literal or inferred in the way that they function, you know? And so what, what we want to do is we, we want to look at the model of why that might be the case. What is it that's going to create that potentially? And so we're going to focus on this idea of when we're born, there is the primary caretaker, and let's just call it, let's just say mother, okay? So we're born and we come into this world and we'll just use mother. We know sometimes mother might not be the primary caretaker. But if mother is, is very consistent in what she says and what she does with this infant, if her verbal and nonverbal communication is congruent or the same, then the child is learning a very literal interpretation of information, right? Mm -hmm. So it is... Communication, we, we're, three parts we're, we're looking at here are the words. So we have the, the words, we have the nonverbal communication, which I'll talk about in a moment, and then the state of mind of the receiver. And that's what determines this, this communication. So if, if we have a mother, though, who has a child, and let's just say, and this is an extreme example, but let's just say, uh, or let's say I was the primary caretaker and I had a child, and if I was holding a child and I said, I love you, well, the words I love you are there, but what's not there? The emotion, the, the nonverbal part of it, right? Because we don't communicate with just words, do we? It can be inflection, it can be body language, all of these things are part of this process, right? But if a child is, is uh, interpreting or not able to interpret because of these incongruencies either in actions and words or in nonverbal and verbal content, the child has no other option but to try to figure out what's really going to happen or what the real meaning is, right? So that's an inference. So if we have, uh, again, these incongruencies present, where the primary caretaker's <laughs> words and nonverbal content are not congruent and or what they say and, and what the primary caretaker does 
is not congruent, then the child has to begin to infer, try to figure out what do you really mean, what's really going to happen, what do you really feel, right? And so this is where we believe the origins of suggestibility are in this relationship. And then as the child develops and goes into uh, you know, school age, there's also the influence of, of course, the secondary caretaker, uh, peers, uh, teachers are also going to have some influence on this as well. But it's the primary caretaker and the way the, this, they initially form this communication with a child that uh, will determine the type of suggestibility. The degree that they are that suggestibility type will differ based on the other experiences that will occur in, in, in this uh, person's development. Uh, is, is that clear? You're, you're following? Is there a question about it? Yes? Can it change? I'm sorry? What did you say? Yes. Um, this inference or literal, mm -hmm. can it change after you can, you're becoming adult? If you are a physical, let's say, suggestible, the percentage of physical suggestibility, and I'll discuss what I mean by that, can alter. But you're not going to uh, shift to an emotional suggestible. You might lower the percentage of information that you process that way so that a certain percentage is more emotional, but your, your dominance is, is uh, likely to remain as a physical suggestibility, uh, if that's what your origin is for that. And that was your question as well? Well, I, I was, yeah, mine was, can a client one day be physical and then emotional? Can they switch back and forth? Well, that's a little tricky question because there are some, um, I could open up a can of worms here a little bit and, get, and we're, not, we're not ready to, to get into some of this information, but you sometimes will deal a little more with emotional type suggestions you'll give, even when someone's physical in certain situations, but generally uh, that's not the case. There are some times when that will happen, but that gets into more advanced application. We're just not where we can understand that yet. What's a good way to test which one Good question. And so we have uh, a number of ways. The, the question is, the question was, uh, what is a good way to test and so to determine that? Well, the primary way or the way that we begin the testing in the first session is with an actual questionnaire uh, that you go through with your client and you, know, you, you score that questionnaire and it gives you a uh, percentage. And then as we go along, we also are going to look at other elements that I will point out to you as we learn them that will also give us indication of suggestibility as we go. So we're both doing it that way and then also how they're responding to different portions of our work will give us that information as well. Okay? So let's, um, let's look at this a little more. I have a question. I hopefully have an answer. What's the influence of religion? On uh, suggestibility? Well, again, most of your, the, the religious uh, information you're going to receive is going to be, that you're going to take in is probably going to be mostly taken after the, the early developmental time. So it could, it could affect it to one degree, but again, it, it's not likely to change you from a physical into an emotional or vice versa. But like any other influence, whether it's a, a religious per, a, a leader or it, whether it's a teacher or whether it's an, an influential uh, uncle or aunt, they, they can have some influence on that as well. So it just it's an individual thing. Um, so let's look at this in terms of a scale, okay? So you've got the physical and the emotional again. 
And we're going to create a scale from 0 to 100% on each of these. And we'll just say that's about the middle. So on this scale, when we assess somebody, we're going to figure out basically what their percentage is. So if we assess somebody and we come up with someone who is, let's say, 70% uh, physical suggestible, obviously, <laughs> what are they here? 30% emotional suggestible. The point is, it's not like we're not, we're, we're going to discuss this in terms of extremes so that we understand the nature of this model. But it's, it's unlikely you're going to run into somebody who's 100% physical or 100% emotional. I think all, many of you are already thinking to yourself, well, sometimes I do it this way and sometimes I do it another. And that's the reality of it. But we need to know what the predominance is, and especially if it's more on the emotional scale, because there's a certain way that we are going to deal with giving suggestive ideas, and, and we're going to get into that. And you know, vice versa, again, if it was 70% emotional, then 30% of their suggestibility is more on the physical. Uh, or When you're stuck outside, and you're looking for a dollar bill, and you go down the street, life doesn't always turn your way, and you're not always lucky, because you want to pick up that dollar bill, but you choose not to pick up that dollar bill. Knowing how you want to do that with that dollar bill, your option to choose and your right to choose is based upon how your emotions and reactions feel at that same place or time or moment that you feel in that way in that minute, hour, second, or time of the day. When you want to choose the exception to be or not to be, you can choose to be in the reality of the physical rather than the mental when you use your head, not your heart, and make that decision to go beyond to the extent anywhere that is not the case. Because if you choose not to take that dollar bill, your chance of luck is run out, and you don't get the dollar bill, but you get another chance at gaining a better perspective on life. So when you see that deception of choosing things that are not yours because you choose not to accept them in your life doesn't mean that it helps you gain more physically in the real world rather the spiritual world gain you another chance at gaining a better life acceptance and the emotion when you think about it using your head not your heart and you come in with a new sense of reality and it boils down to conversational language and English that is used in the in the acceptance and and uh, uh, presentation and physical acceptance and reality of what is true or not and what you believe to be is true or not. So then, when you take the presupposition of NLP into mind, you can put the acceptance of neuro-linguistic programming, of the acceptance of reality-based thinking, of what is really real and what is really not real, 
and put in decisions that will help you find a way to accept what you want to believe and what you choose not to believe. And therefore, you make a decision based upon your heart's decision when you shouldn't do that because that can cause problems and that can cause violence, which will only lead to the only solution to solve that, which is to use diplomacy in times of war. And those times, you have to think hard about being calm and relaxed and in the now, rather to accept negation as a new alternative because you don't want to believe because you're too scared. It's a form of fear-mongering or fear-searching in your heart, and you can't accept the reality of real, real acceptance. So because you're scared, the perception of reality that makes you scared is your thought. But when you think about it, you're not thinking about it because you have to make a decision to choose to think about it before you can make the decision to act upon it. And when you act upon it, you want to make that decision right so you know you're doing the right thing and you don't know how to make the right decision in the real world because the world is an unbalanced place. But when you choose to negate something and you choose to say no, you're making a, 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 an acceptance to yourself that one day you will do it, just not here, not at this time. And the fluctuations of the moon interact with your emotional and human psyche and the intellectual response of the brain that causes you to react somewhere, somehow, in the land of astrology. And that makes it a part of your birth chart and your natal astrology or your natal wheel or your birthrights for what you're born to do. And that's how you react upon your emotions that make you happy, joyous, and feel good about each other. Because when you feel good, you feel better about yourself and you become more safe, happy, wealthy, and financially stable and independent. But that's only because you're making those decisions using what you choose to want to choose to accept rather than using your head, not your heart, which could lead to a better, more happier, safer, safer more wealthy, healthy, honestly, beautiful, loving life in a happy, more better, safe world that will only make you feel better in the end, happy, safe, wealthy, and independent. This is to be used as a tool of educational reference. This is official, original material. I'm just going to teach you how a shooter's mind uh, is programmed at the beginning and it gets better on from there. Great secrets. Great education. This is just an introduction. All for the educational learning achievement mechanism to learn and educate yourself and to grow and exceed and succeed and achieve in your educational goals. The shooter was programmed in a hypnotical trance invertedly using a hypnotical method of subconscious upturn programming where instead of 
descending down. He is descending but going up. Up into transmission of higher ascended rates from coming into a lower level and going into a deeper state rather than a higher state which is becoming more obtainable to react to suggestible states. Houses 1357911, 1357911, houses 1357911, houses 2468-1012, houses 2468-1012 are all separate and disparate. It's 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 in a different side. One side is on one, one side is on the other, and it's positive and negative. Adjust accordingly. Reacts properly to everything that you hear, specifically and directly to everything that is said to them. Specifically, when you're dealing with the mind, the delta and theta states of sleep, rather not the alta in per se, but the alpha, or the alta, sorry, the alpha, as it was termed, the alpha and the beta, the beta and the alpha are the awakening states of sleep, where you are consciously queer-minded. The... Um, Theta and Delta are the depth of the sleep. The Theta and Delta are highly con contracting strength and power. It's a, a form of mass manipulation or control to alter one's thoughts and to control and make them do whatever you say and whatever you want them to do and give them the power to tell them how to live and to do what they are told to do like an army or a cop. What their what their orders are given are direct, clear, and concise. So a, a delta and a theta are direct and clear. And it is because of those states that are in those states that are in the depth itself that keeps you in a state of focus for that 
conscious recollection to cognitively work itself so that you learn from it and you react upon it because it is the physical reaction it will take upon it that will cause the harm to individual. It is one of the most highly suggestible states that would kill or murder an ultimate death and do anything to control and to change the game on you. And we've played that game before and I've heard these lies and I've heard all these tough talks but this is how you change the game before you. The game is placed out like that and it controls the power of theta and delta and manipulates somebody into coercing them to do whatever you tell them to do. And it is a suggestible state in the fact that it alters the mind and makes you think like you have the power of God. And there is no way to break the state in a state like this. And there is no way to get out of it at all. But the realization is called subconscious reprogramming where you tell the thought and you try to give it the the, the suggestible state the suggestible state or suggestion to control one's familiar familiarities and make them do what you want to do or ask them to do what you are told from the other side of the spectrum that gives the order to that person, to that person. And then the beta and uh, alpha is the state of sleep in the sleeping or resting period but because hypnosis is a form of energy when you use the lighter states the mind only reacts to the subconscious reprogramming and will do effective immediate responses and cause harm because it is told under a light state of trance and that is called trance state of trance or mechanisms of trance mediumship so that is a form of self-control from the delta and gamma and theta states A person would not normally respond to a hypnotical suggestion that wouldn't have 
otherwise at all suited them in the count of the degree that they would be under the influence of something that they would not want to do or should do. Because if it's not in their nature, they would not respond. Now, what they have is ways of going around it by breaking the critical factor of the brain and going deep within the subconscious using conversational hypnotherapy and mentalism tricks of mind reading and, you know, simple basic psychology tricks that would alter the state of the, the hypnotic process or the... Uh, system of hypnosis which would then alter a control to do what you want to make them do what you want and there's a way to use what most people call the uh, subliminal routine of subliminal messages being downloaded into the brain that they don't say it's downloaded but they call it converted into the brain or uploaded. This way they can get the reaction downloaded down the other way and they will respond to it. So downloading means going down and coming into fruition, making them react to it. A registered thought can only be registered if consciously aware of it. If you're consciously aware of what you're planning to do, the choice is made when you use your head, not your heart. When you register it and think for a minute of what you choose to do, even before you do it, you make a conscious decision in your head to first think before you react to such matters of the information at hand and then make a generalized decision and rush upon it and act right on it. In hypnosis, there's no way to control yourself in a spot where you're not able to control yourself, obviously, because you can't control yourself. So in that state of where you're not able to control yourself, the spot that you're not controlling is the numbness. So you have to ease the numbness, and you have to bypass that numbness by... It, it, they call that virtual gastric band therapy. Okay?
Psychologists teach cognitive behavioral therapy, but that has to be banned all the way entirely, along with some other features in the Pranzo-Anthony case, which has been documented legally by the Supreme Court of Law and the legal judge, Judge Kavanaugh, and the judge of the Supreme Court, Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Anthony Scalia. Going to see a licensed psychic or an astrologer is the way out of healing and recovering from spiritual wounds. And if you deal with a, a psychiatrist or a psychologist and you want to see a hypnotist, you should seek a hypnotist rather because the psychologist or psychiatrist will then shoot you up 4,000 pills or drug you or label you as something critically crazy that you're not even able to pronounce, and that'll only last you five or four years in hell, which you don't want to go through and don't need the cost of living through. Not alone that they do know that race, sex, gender, religion, politics, male and female, and the specific art of there is a God, well, there's none of that in the world. That's why there was a 9-11, and there is no way to save us at all. And then comes my astrology. That's the only way out. The only way out. Only. Sex is good, but only in moderation because it is pr pr prone and liable to kill at all costs. And it's highly, extremely deadly. A shooter's mind is only receptible to the inherited detail of a negative thought. So if you plug a suggestible person, and especially with anybody, with negative thoughts, and they're invertedly hypnotized, they will come across and react dysfunctionally causing an internal stimuli reaction of mass shootings and explosions. Any reaction from the moon, because an equal opposite reaction toward a reaction that comes directly to you is valid point to react back to you in the same manner based upon the moon's waxing and waning of the moon. 
the world is run by the moon and the waxing and wanning of the moon, the new moon and the full moon are main focal points that control the reaction of the external or uh, the main cause of reaction time for people in the world who don't subconsciously, who are in the external, the subconscious, who don't know it in their head, but they are being programmed to receive messages subliminally through reaction time. And because of the interpretations of the planetary alignment of the, of the solar system and how the planets are positioned at the time of birth, their internal uh, mind subliminally sees that and their out, outstanding or direct reaction toward the outside stimuli or the world around them is to react in that manner. And if you're controlling somebody under a suggestible state, you can easily cause an instant reaction. When someone is in a light trance, the most highly extreme severe cases of a light trance the most extreme the highly deadly the most deadly the the uh, like the osama 9-11 september 11 bombing extreme cases the real bombing of 9-11 something really strong of like trance is the only way to become highly suggestible to reaction time that is a reaction time and once it's proceeded under hypnosis it can cause devastating effects so use your powers wisely because theta and delta are the lightest. They can cause deadly effects that can ripple forever in your memory and will literally jam you in your head and put a knife to your eye and blow out your eyeball in a matter of minutes with a blade from a machete. It's that bad. It is that bad. And it will poke your eye out with a needle, with an injectable needle to your eye. It's that bad. It is so bad you'll be crossed, dropped down, and dragged on the street and thrown in the street forever. It's so bad. So don't ever try it. In a light state of trance, when you ascend into a higher level and ascend higher, you're in a state of recollection. 
so the words can easily pass through you. In that state, you can become receptive to suggestions. That's the first thing. Relaxation is counting around the corner from 1 to 10. Then deepening is going 10 to 1, going downward, going all the way downward. Then you got to ascend us up again by counting upward. And the reason you want to count downward is because it's, it is condescending, but technically you want to go from 1 to 10 and then you want to in your mind's eye as you count downward you're going to count the numbers 1 to 10 but you're going to speak them slower and slower as if you were counting downward then you're going to count upward again and then, only then, are you going to drop and count downward 10 to 1. If you do that in a slow maneuver of words, speaking with calming tones and relaxing music, and then you say these words, these specific words, you will instantly put them in a trance. Now the terms that they use to do it after this procedure is there is a sign and a signal. Notice that when you say there is a sign and a signal, the word that you're saying with the S word is a term that has to be said slowly. Then say, enter deep hypnosis now. But then say, psychokinesis. And then say, deep sleep now. And they will automatically enter hypnosis. Automatically. Once you get your suggestions in, then you have to count them up 1 to 10 going upward. And then counting 3 to 1 backward. And then say escape. Hidden underneath its undertones. That is called a secret subliminal message. When it is said underneath its suggestibility, it can be suggested hiddenly. That is a form of secret talking like whispering or talking softly or slowly. Talking slowly with speed. In the case of this, they would call this 
an energy or vibration. The direct specific information they get from it is that when you're negating something and you're negating it into a negative order, most of the time, like a transformational movie, a negation is always considered the truth. And in a courtroom, the truth will always win out no matter what. Just stay positive and keep it with the keep it with white lies. I mean, it's okay with white lies. It's all right. But just be careful of being a liar. If you're a liar, you'll never win. You'll never win. It's got to be 100% honest. 100% honest. See, when you're under hypnosis, negation plays a part. Knowing that you're negated or you're negating something forms an energy of I do not want to do this or I do not feel like doing this. It's alright to say I do not want to do this but if I said I do not feel like I want to do this that's a totally different thing. So you've got to be direct to the point and say no. More times you say no, you're actually controlling the mind in a suggestible state to act upon it. This is one of the mind manipulators that I talked about where we were discussing dragged on the street and shot up and beat up for assaulting and murdering yourself over mentalism. Mentalism, again, is the term they use for mind control or taking over someone's brain and taking over someone's thought patterns and hijacking them. If you do that, with mentalism, that's a bad thing. And like I said previously, that's not accepted in this particular case that I have discussed. Overall, when trying to use mentalism, you want to keep it always positive. And never in the negative condensation because you will cause a riot. Mentalism is only used in suggestible states. After doing the what we call the induction, which is a simple calming and relaxing of tranquil music and healing positive bells and rain and thunder 
and relaxing melodies and calming, relaxing sounds and a word, spoken word, telling you to relax and take it easy and just calm yourself. Then you go to the deepener where you go down a flight of stairs and then you ascend up into trance. Now, in my case, I don't do the deepener. I do the ascension, and then I drop them down anyway. But uh, then we have to insert the suggestions after getting into a lock of uh, what we call a specific connection lock. So in order to do that, you have to go back to the the uh, so it goes induction deepener, but then you go to relaxing again, and you tell them to relax and take it easy, and you say go further and further, deeper and deeper into deep hypnosis. Now the term I use. The term that specifically controls them is the now part. So you would so you would say this in the in the induction, as well as the after the deepener, while you're re- reciting that relaxative part, you would say go further and further, deeper and deeper. That, that's how you would perform the induction and the deepener. Then you would install the extra modalities of the system. Transtermination awakens them. It is all well said, good and done, when you hypnotize somebody. But again, there are ways of explaining it, and I'll tell you a way to do it to the most extent. If you said, beyond to the extent which is not the case, that would imply that you're going beyond, going back, which is giving a power of going or receiving, not the extent. So you're telling them it's now okay to achieve this goal, but you must be cautious, but it won't listen because you're saying not. Then you say extent and then it'll proceed to be believed in the moment that you are, in your moment that you want to become. So that means the moment that you are, the moment that you are, the current state, the state that you are. So you could say the moment that your current state that you're in right now that you are to be believed you got to keep it in the positive remember to be believed to be positive and if you work your way around those words you can actually use conversational hypnosis 
Now, in the end, that's just a simple form of conversational hypnosis. If you put embedded commands and you put words inside a word and replace the word, then you embed the command in the paragraph or sentence you're giving the power of suggestible codes to manipulate and use mentalism. The script session is usually consists of the induction and the deepener. When you write the script, Intentionally, you're writing one part of a long, long, calming part. And then you're writing something to bring them descending down the stairs from 10 to 1. And you're dropping them lower and lower. It can be 20 to 1. It can be 30 to 1. But it's got to be really down low into the bottomless pit. Now, in my case, after you do the, the, the descending part, it's always good to ascend them because it's sort of like, it's kind of like very, very condescending that you would not bring them up because then if they're down, how are they going to find their way into trance. Now, a specific way to do a script in the manner that you're doing it, there's a way to do it where you make the deepener go from three to one, or what I like to call counting back upward but you would go downward in the number. So you would start from 40 and go up to 1, but you would, you would, as you count the numbers, you read them downward. So 40, 48, 47, 46, 45. You would read them as if you're reading them. But again, it has to be back the other way. Back the other way. And as you're counting them back the other way, you're going to ascend them back up by reassociating the brain. So what you're going to do is you're going to you're going to count 1 to 10 by descending that number and going 10 to 1. So instead of 1 to 10, you're going to count them back the other way, 10 to 1. So you're going to go 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, Three, two, one. That is called the, um, it's a part of the deepener, and that usually goes 
Again, you got the induction, which is the relaxing, the regular deepening, which is the calming, or the or the what most psychologists call the anxiety-provoking mechanism. And then there's those steps I mentioned in this tape. And then there's the ascending of raising themselves into a light trance. But in this particular tape, I discuss how to get them in there faster than anything I said before. Although, once you do it with the induction deepener, and you apply the, the uh, suggestions, and then you apply a special move, which I like to call trance-raising. What you do is you go three to one, and you go three to one, but you, you start with three and the highest number and go down. Then you say escape. And you got to count them slow as hell, and you got to get them down, and they will awake in the trance escaping. That's like the great way of doing an induction deepener and suggestion, and then waking them up. That's if you're recording something. Now, in the case of what I just told you in this tape, you're going to apply all these parts, but then you're going to apply at the end, after the suggestion is implanted, you're going to imply the 10 to 1 raising downward, counting backward. Okay? So then you're going to count backward from 10 to 1. Then... You're going to raise it up all the way from one to ten, and then sit and you gotta you gotta snap your finger so freaking hard and say escape at the end, and they will wake up. But if you don't do it without the order I just said a minute ago, where you're descending them down from. 10 to 1, it won't work. You must include that 10 to 1 or you will damage them. You will damage them. You can apply all these procedures with words. I understand. Everything I taught you is worded right. The astrology keywords are all with words and energy. And the months go with the houses that go with the signs that go with the symbols that go with the metaphor that go with the energy and intuitiveness and psychology. In the end, when you explain yourself in the tape at the beginning of your hypnosis session, you've got to tell them, and you've got to be very careful about what you say, you've got to tell them, this is a moving vehicle instrument. So don't use it in a moving vehicle. 
Give them precaution that you're a professional. Let them know all your credentials. Let them know you're safe with us and that you'll be going to sleep. Let them know not to be doing anything at the time, driving any motor vehicles, or trying to maintain anything they want to do at all, or absolutely get involved with anything. So if they're doing something right now, put that down and let go of it and learn to sit down and do only this and only this topic you're doing now. Tell them this is for your own beneficial results. You need to stress that you are in a place of calm, serenity, and peace. And you also got to let them know that you, if you need urgent care, to call 911. That's important. And uh, ask for the FDNY. My recommendation. Okay? So now, the last thing I got to ask you is, after you got the procedure down for the beginning of the tape, we'll discuss in the next tape, or somewhere on this disc, what to do with the frequencies. The binaural... The monaural and the isochronic beats are all a part of the frequencies. Frequency 4.4 and uh, 4.0 are memory and psychic ability. 2.0 is hearing. So in the end, you're dealing with the main, for those are the basic symptoms of frequencies. But in the end, um, and, and basically what you're dealing with, uh, the specific part of it, the main part of those parts, you're putting melodies and music behind hypnosis frequencies. Those music and melodies are altering the brainwaves as it's playing, and it's a form of subliminal induction. And it can be very distracting to hear sounds that you do not want in your, your mind to accept. Because again, they're not listening to the music. They're listening to a frequency behind the music. So you're inducing them into a, a subliminable act of control. You want to relax them. And it's self-control. And then it's sleeping downward into relaxation, which will cause a state of tender, subliminal sleep. What you don't want is for them to be in conscious state and awakening state at the same time. If you're both in conscious and awakening but you're still sleeping, you're in a state called somnambulism. But they say that beta, alpha, theta, delta, and gamma are the levels of brain waves. Beta is the, the basic 
alpha is the the present and theta is the middle and delta and gamma are the deepenings those are the studies the baselines the study baselines in the end what i learned is delta and theta are the ones that that will kill you to a point where you become crazy because you're suggestible and you're more highly suggestible to doing anything they tell you anything but beta and alpha are the lightest ways to go but it's not the lightest state as 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 we learn from this you can definitely learn from what we learned that delta and theta are the lightest that's why you have to be very careful because you're imploding an energy that is strong but it's a light version of strong that's why delta and theta are light not beta and alpha that is not the case